The local church is a collection of people who are being transformed by Jesus, who live in a community purposefully to model and proclaim Jesus. Scripture tells us to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. Every story is unique. Each person is an individual who has met Jesus. All of us have strengths and weaknesses. Together, we are the church, and these are our stories. And we are back at Generation Podcast. This is Stories of Faith, episode two of Pastor Jeff's Story. Up to this point, we've watched a boy transform into a man that was anything but godly. Uh, we've watched a boy uh, not just on his own behalf make these decisions that sent him spiraling down to uh, to to tr- nothing but trouble, but we've watched the people in his life and in his life around him uh, implode themselves and how we, how those people actually set the foundations at a very young age for Jeff to to become his own bad decision maker, which sent him ultimately to prison. He he found God in prison. Uh, he prayed for a transformation and and Jesus transformed Jeff on, on the spot, really. Yeah. You know, he laid down to go to sleep. He woke up and he was free from drug addiction. And I would say along with that was probably a clarity on life that might have been different than than before that nap. And uh, and he got out. He reconnected with Lisa. And now as two adults free of any kind of bondage from from illegal activity or drug addiction, uh, you're starting your lives as Christian people. Yeah. And this is where your story begins. Yeah, absolutely. So we talked a lot about um, negative influence and um there was this, uh, so I was in and out of different prisons and jails and stuff for a long time. And then my final, my final term in prison, after I come to faith, um, I had some bad experiences with Christians inside. And uh, I didn't, you know, the people that go in and find God in prison and because prison's hard and they do that, um, that wasn't me. I actually excelled in prison and did well and was comfortable. Becoming a Christian while I was still locked up was super hard. I was good at prison politics. I understood the rules. You know, you don't pay things back. You get stabbed. I mean, I, I understand prison <laughs> life, right? And so someone rips you off, you go handle it. Otherwise, everybody's going to take me. So you got to do these things. So I, I was good in prison. And, and that it was that incarcerated kind of institutionalized mindset. It was when I realized that in our last episode, I said that a guy said something that really kind of broke my brain, realized who I'd become. That changed my life. So I, I wanted to be new. I wanted to be different. I wasn't asking you to get out. I knew I belonged there. But as I came to faith and was doing my time and got sentenced, got back into prison, I tried going to a, a chapel service. And it was an inmate preacher, and he was like fire and brimstone on Sunday, but smoking a joint, reading a playboy on Monday. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, I'm not doing this. This is stupid. Well, I go to a different place and a different prison and uh, end up on this yard and there's this chaplain and I, I think his last name is Parker, Chaplain Parker. I think that's true. He would, well, he's, he's dead now. He would not have known my name ever, I don't think. And I have a hard time remembering his name, but I can tell you about this man like it was yesterday. 
So all these influences in my life, um, probably a, a negative, well, not probably, a negative Christian impact in my dad because of who he was at the time. Uh, some negative, positive impacts in the many men that were a part of my life that were criminals and whatever, who I loved and cared about, and uh, but they were negative impacts. This one guy, I remember he would, he was older, and he would, you know, kind of wander across the yard, and, and you could go in and do a Bible study with him and, and sit around this table, probably bigger than this one, maybe 10, 12 guys sitting around this table, and, you know, probably eight out of 10 were probably never getting out. Yeah. And he would open the, up the Bible, and as he began to read the Word of God, he would cry. It, just a tear would come down his page, face, right? And he was a full-time pastor. He did this chaplain thing as a, a volunteer and I saw in him, in prison, I saw in him a godly man. And I remember thinking, I want what he has. I don't want it now. Like, I can't be that guy inside. I have right. to be who I am inside, right? But there's something about him that I want. So I paroled on a Sunday morning, and Lisa and I were in a church on Sunday night. And we got married six months later and I moved in with her to her apartment in Long Beach. We made it about a year there and we moved to Costa Mesa. And so we're now in the marriage and at 30 years old when we got married, we were 29, I turned 30 10 days later on our honeymoon. So I say 30, I was worse off than any 18 year old. So any 18 year old should not be in debt, not have bad credit, <laughs> have a high school diploma and move on. I was 30 with all bad things with, you know, and, and six months later I got off parole, but I mean, I was on parole. I had negative debt. I had no high school diploma. I had three felonies and multiple misdemeanors. And so 30 years old, I'm in the hole, right? So about 31, when we land in Costa Mesa, I tell Lisa, listen, we have got to find a church. We've been driving to a church. It was kind of about an hour away just because we knew people. I've got to find a church close to home. I've got to figure out what it looks like to be a man. Like I have all these wrong things. I've got to look, figure out what it looks like to be a man. My wife's the one who taught me how to do finances and balance a checkbook and helped us get out of debt and clean up my record and my credit and all that stuff. Right. So I need to figure out how to be a biblical man. And so I'm like, all right, I'm gonna find a church. So second church we tried in Costa Mesa was Rock Harbor. And we walked in the door and we're in our early thirties and married and everybody else is in their early 20s and single, and everybody looks like Ken and Barbie. <laughs> and uh, if anybody's Same way ever, now, by the way, there. <laughs> it's, it hasn't changed, right? I mean, to their credit, they reach college students yeah. very well. I walked in, and I'm like, we're home. My wife's like, heck, no, we're not. You know what I mean? And so anyhow, we sit down for the service, and the guy who gets up to do the announcements, it was his first day as the new associate pastor, and he looked just like me. And man, shout out to Troy Murphy. We'll probably never hear this, but <laughs> that dude changed my life. And uh, he ended up becoming a mentor of mine. And uh, he now pastors Green Bay Community Church, and he's the chaplain for the Packers. Oh, cool. And so he's a cool guy. And uh, But he changed my life. And I began to seek out what it looks like to be a man of God. And that that trajectory just reshaped everything. Yeah, yeah. So... We, it's at that time now. Now we're starting to, uh, for lack of better, lack of better word, we're, we're starting to see the Jeff redemption story. Yeah, right? yeah. So, what are we doing with the rest of our life, kind of thing? Yeah. So now you're you're pretty solid at this right. point, right? Your 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 faith is solid. 
Your marriage is solid. Yep. You got some stuff you got to deal with, but that's life. And, and you're now at Rock Harbor. Yep. Where did the decision that God is calling you to be a pastor come yeah. into play? So when I got out of prison, I went back to, I had a friend who was in the trades and I had done some of that and he put me to work immediately. So three days after I got out of prison, I was working with him. I was waiting for a job that I had to open back up and I used to manage health clubs and I was a part of the health club industry in the nineties when LA fitness went from, you know, a handful of clubs to a hundred clubs. And I left with a guy who used to be a VP at LA fitness and we started a chain of six clubs with an investor, with a guy. And we decided we would bring martial arts into health clubs that didn't exist. And so, um, he, this guy ended up leaving that chain of clubs and he started King of the Cage. And so Terry Treblecock uh, started King of the Cage. So he and I worked together. We started these six clubs. We brought martial arts into the clubs. So I went back to that. And so I went back to what I knew, fitness, martial arts, went back to doing that. And I was struggling in the health club industry. You're obviously surrounded by women who aren't wearing a lot of clothing. Yeah. My life is not known for self-discipline at the time, right? Like right. I, I was known for doing wrong things, not right things. And I didn't do anything wrong, wrong. And, but we went on this marriage retreat and I told Lisa, hey, I'm struggling with like looking at, I wasn't, it wasn't porn, it wasn't, I wasn't doing anything wrong, wasn't talking to these women, but I was struggling. And like I'm, in, I'm, I'm surrounded by that. And it fed a bunch of issues Lisa has in her past, things like that. But we just decided I had to get out of it. So I go back into some trades and, and some different things, working with my hands, but I hated it. And somebody one day made a, um, a mistake. We were remodeling high-end homes in Newport Beach and we were doing a kitchen. The lead guy on my crew, he made a mistake and we're in this house and the owner had just said, we're standing in his driveway. He just told us about how he imported this stone from Spain that we're standing on and how much money it cost. That driveway cost more money than your house and my <laughs> house, right? And so, um, and when I'm with this guy and we're pulling out this 48-inch Sub-Zero side-by-side refrigerator freezer, it's, I mean, it's got to weigh 800 pounds <laughs> and he makes, and it's going to fall. Oh. And I reach out to grab the furniture dolly and stop it from falling and it hits both biceps and I don't bruise easy and I blacken both biceps and it blew out two, three discs in my back. And so it was the beginning of the end for me in, in that. And so around the same time, I'm at Rock Harbor, but I'm going down to this church in Irvine and to, to this men's breakfast on Friday mornings. You go down and pray at six, quick study at seven. And the pastor said, he asked this question. He said, if you had all the time and the money in the world, what would get you out of bed in the morning? And I had neither time nor money, but <laughs> I asked myself, what would I want to do? And the, and the answer I came up with is that the Bible had changed my life, right? I have that one good yep. chaplain experience. Yep. But what I didn't say is after I came to faith every night when it got quiet, there's a, there's a silent count at night to make sure before you lock everything up that every prisoner supposed to be there is there. And they make everybody get quiet, whether in cells or, or dorms or whatever you're in. And I would use that time to read the Bible every night. So I literally wore the covers off a Bible sitting behind us. 
and read the Bible every night, and it changed everything. I didn't have a church. I didn't have a pastor. I didn't have people discipling me. I didn't even know other Christians, really. I was still hanging out with the gangs right. and the people that were all doing other things in prison, but I was changing. So fast forward to that question. It's probably 2001, and my answer was I'd want to teach other people the Bible because that changed my life. I didn't say I want to become a pastor. Right. So I want to teach other people the Bible. Well, that progressed into me uh, and that getting injured progressed to me going to school full-time, going to seminary for two years. I tested out of all my undergrad, went right into grad school. And so I went full-time and graduated in two years and uh, while I was at Rock Harbor and had some other good mentors at the time, education, and that one thing progressed to another. So I got two questions for you. One, do you think that like do you ever look back and think man am i lucky that my mom made those early childhood investments in those educational things absolutely because you screwed up all of your actual formal education i did and you're still able to come out somewhat of an intellect at the end of this game right yeah and then two did you ever think that look i told god i would never leave him i laid my head down and went to sleep and i woke up a new man yeah Am I, am I just missing it? Like, has there been moments where like, look, Jeff, I, I got you out of here. got you reconnected. Yeah. What are we doing here? Look, Jeff. Yeah. I, okay, fine. I'll drop this refrigerator on you. Sure. If that, you know, was there any of those moments where it's like, God, you, where you look back and you think, oh yeah, God, it was trying to, I turned my head a lot on the mic, so hopefully it doesn't mess up the audio too much. But were there times when you specifically remember Looking back and thinking, man, I was, I was, I wasn't like intentionally running from God, but I definitely wasn't holding up my end of the bargain when it comes to what I should be doing in my faith and sharing that with people. You know, surprisingly, I'm going to say no. Um, Once I became, I, I truly was a follower of Jesus. I was doing all the, I was not a good image of a Christian <laughs> at the time, but I was ra- I was changing, amazingly changing. I remember, so again, if you brought drugs in, we got yep. some. And so I remember not using, and so I would trade it. I, other people call that selling, but I would trade it for like coffee and cigarettes and whatever else, right? And then I felt uncomfortable that I was actually selling drugs yeah. in prison and that I, w- I shouldn't be doing that as a Christian. And so the guys that would get it, I'd just have them give me something else. And I, I mean, like, I wasn't a good Christian, but I remember going through those changes. I remember trying to control my language and uh, doing those things. But I was dead set, and I was telling them, these are guys that are they're pretty bad guys. And I was telling them, like, hey, I'm just, I'm a Christian. Like, I don't know, man, but I was still a part of them, but I, yeah, I yeah. was changing. And so when I got out, I wasn't qualified to do anything. So I went back to what I I had only a few jobs in my life anyhow, so I went back to what I knew. When I did it, I was a witness in those places. In that same health club that I ended up leaving, we also were reaching out to people and and bringing them to church and seeing them come to faith. I mean, we had an impact, right? And so, you know, you fast forward, and, and I've taken three college classes, undergrad classes. Like I said, I tested out everything else. And that third one... I, a series of people came to faith in there. I knew I was called to ministry, right? So once I did it, every piece 
every step prior to that, I think God used as a training ground. And so, um, yeah, I, I think I stayed on track. And even the refrigerator, actually that drop of that refrigerator paid for school. And oh, so, um, yeah. And so every step of the way since then, though I've done a million things wrong, honestly, I've never, I've kept my end of the deal. I've never left following God. I've had moments of more faithful following God than sure. other seasons. And Not that's like everybody, everybody, right? Yeah, right? that's everybody. But I've never been anything other than a follower of Jesus from that very moment. That's cool. You know, I think that because you're the extreme lifestyle switch was yeah. so drastic the the transformation component was so evident yeah that you probably motivated you and also kept you in check a lot because you can like you know the guy that the guy that wakes up every day he's got his great job and his great house and a great family he's a yeah. christian guy but his his successes might not be as drastically measurable right so it's easy to fall into complacency but when you when you have a, a measuring stick that is so evident it's probably a little bit easier to at least look at, at the how real God is in your life. Yeah. If we fast forward back to the story that I mentioned earlier, so it's 2015, the elders at Park Church have sent me on a four-month sabbatical after not only a long, crazy life, but after planting a church and replanting two other churches, and then our new plant strategy kind of grenaded, and so they sent me away. It's 2015. And I began writing, and that's where I kind of uncovered the um, I never fit in issues and how much that yep. impacted me. I wrote the introduction to that book. And again, it's not the book that I've published, the book that people know about. It's another one I that I hope to go actually and finish. But I wrote the, the introduction to it, and I had just recently buried a young 28-year-old man that I discipled, he had been a part of two of my churches and my church plant in Huntington and then my replant in Long Beach. And I met him when he was 16 or 17 and he had come off the mission, his parents were missionaries and he'd come off the mission field. He raised in the church, he was a good kid by all accounts, right? Loved Jesus, never really had a day in his life where he didn't know and love Jesus, had his own problems and sin and whatever. But at 26, he was diagnosed with leukemia and I was a part of that. I, he was in a small group with me. And I looked at him like, dude, you don't look good, right? And I used to mock him a lot. And so we're like, oh, shut up, blah, 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 right? <laughs> no, dude, you really don't look good. So we, I was like a parent to him. His, his missionary parents, they still lived while they, they lived in a second world, third world country. So I helped him with his insurance and did stuff. So he ends up with AML, a very, very serious uh, um, leukemia. Well, I had just done his funeral as I started. Uh, his, his funeral was the last day before I went on sabbatical. And I wrote the forward to this book and said, hey, listen, here's this kid, and his name's Ryan. And I said, that's the million-dollar story. This kid never knew a day outside of Jesus. That's the very thing we want for your kids and my kids and anybody else's kids, whatever. When we have little kids in the church, my prayer for them is that they'll never know any of the stupidity I know. Right. Any of right. the pain I know, and that they'll never know a day outside of Jesus. Well, he had that. My story is the one that gets told. His is the million-dollar story. Right, right. And really, for me, that's, that's, the, that's what we want for everyone. And the only reason to tell my story definitely isn't to glorify anything I've ever done, not good or bad. 
but the, it would change someone else, right? Yep. So I think that um, uh, it's important to, to not let this go before we wrap up is, you know, a lot of people think that it's an easy life as a Christian when you can be a pastor, when, you, sure. when you're surrounded by the church and your whole life is just within Jesus. But you have a very different component to that. Yeah. You have a, a constant battle. You know, you have a you have a, a part of your story is is t really testing of your faith every mm -hmm. day. Yeah. And it caused a crisis of faith. And so Lisa and I got married in 99 and in 2002, we woke up in the middle of the night. Everything had been normal. We went to bed and uh she woke up in the middle of the night, tried to stand up to go to the bathroom and passed out. And uh, as she was getting up, fell again, I think. That's what woke up me. And everything was spinning in the room for her. And she couldn't get up. And she kept falling. And she was throwing up. And that started uh, something that was almost, it was 19 and a half years ago. We've been married now for 23 years. Almost 20 of them uh, are her chronically ill so that those symptoms they progressed into pain and some other things we've had moments where uh, we got like hey i think she might have a brain tumor i mean like we we've had some scary moments and then most of it has been we don't know what's wrong with her like we can aggravate things but we can't make them better so being a pastor there's some assumptions about me and my faith and how things are I came to a crisis of faith, I don't know, man, 10 years ago, maybe a little longer now. I say 10 years a lot, so probably 12, 13 years ago. I woke up one day, and I have a habit of every day I get up early in the morning, I get up before anybody else in the house gets up or anything else I do, and I pray. Pray or read the Bible, do whatever, but I pray. And I remember I was up in the Hesperia, so it was somewhere between 2007 and 2010, and I got up one morning and I sat in our living room on this couch where I used to pray every morning and I just ran out of words. I had been praying for Lisa to be better, to be healed, to not suffer every day, um, for things to change. I'd been praying that over and over for years and I ran out of words and I just couldn't pray. And I had to sit there. And here's what I did, man. I, every morning I got up and I sat there. And I just, I had to walk myself, okay, is God good? Yes. Okay, God is good. Has God met me in my life whenever I've needed him? Yes. Okay. Does Lisa still love Jesus and walk in? Yes. Okay. I just don't have anything to pray. I've said everything I know how to pray. So I had to, I, I had to walk through. And I am such a theology and Bible nerd. And this is why. My beliefs and my theology carried me through when my feelings couldn't. Now, you're a lot like that. Yep. I'll take belief over feelings every day of the week. Yep. I have totally. prayed, God, I want to feel your love. God, I want to hear your voice. I probably don't want to. It probably scare the crap out of me. But I, I have prayed for more of an emotional faith, but I have a legitimate conviction belief. Yeah, contrary to many people's opinions, 
yes, I'll tell you right now, feelings can indeed be wrong. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. you know, it's like... Feelings are not trustworthy. Yeah. yeah Experiences so, aren't even trustworthy. Yep, yep. But Scripture is trustworthy and God is trustworthy. And so it took a good two, three weeks, I think, before I could actually pray again. But I got up every morning. Yep. And I walked myself through, is God still good? Yes. And the reason I, I share a little bit of it, it's not just my crisis of faith, but I've been able to sit down with people in extraordinary circumstances, people that um, are attracted to the same sex, are don't feel like they're the gender that they were born with, are suicidal, are in bad marriages or whatever. And I can sit down and I can relate in this sense You'll hear someone who's same-sex attracted say, listen, I was born like this. I've prayed and prayed and prayed and God hasn't changed me, blah, blah, blah. Okay. I actually have that story. Right. I prayed and prayed and prayed and God hasn't changed things. And I still believe God is good and I still stay married and I still believe and I still pray and I still pray for some of the same things. But I understand what it looks like to pray for something for years, unrelentingly, passionately, weeping, God, please, you know, and have him not answer it the way I want him to. Now, if you ask my wife, God has healed her in so many ways and done so many amazing things that she still has a, an amazing faith, a solid faith. She approaches each day, for the most part, with a smile and a good attitude and hope. I struggled, and I needed to come to terms with if God never changes anything, is God still good? Can I still follow God? And yeah, to answer what, that question, what happens I'm still is, here. What happens is people get this, I, th I thought you had my back God theory sure. going on in their minds. But before we get too far away from it, I think it's important that we share that the, the, the process when you were there and you couldn't pray, right? When you had no words that you still got up every day and, and you still sat there and you, so you practiced yeah. physically and you knew in your mind that God was good. Yeah. So your spirit was weak in the moment, but your body and your mind came in to the rescue and beat your spirit back into line eventually, right? I probably flipped that. I'd probably say in my flesh, I was super weak because I wasn't getting what I was asking for. Yeah, well, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you that on, on that because you physically got up and you Fair. disciplined the the behaviors of doing yeah. it anyways even when you weren't getting that sure okay so, i see that so yeah. in your body you were you were disciplined in your mind you still you held tight to god being good and your spirit in that moment was a little weak but it, there's times in our yes, lives when your true. mind is weak so you need to make sure your body and your spirit are right and right. then there's times in your life when you're undisciplined your body's weak but you need to make sure your spirit and your sure. mind are right and if we can as many times as we can uh have two on one within yeah. our own beings for good we can get through stuff with god right that's fair and so you know there's like the shema uh the ancient hebrew it's like deuteronomy has it it's repeated in the new testament you know, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, right? So me loving God with my mind, knowing who God is theologically, biblically, mentally, knowing who that is, overcame the weakness in my spiritual life yep, and yep. my in my weakness. Right. And I'll say the weakness in my flesh, in the, in the metaphoric flesh, right? And not getting what I wanted. 
I knew God was good and I would open up scripture and I would allow my mind and what I knew to be true. And I had facts for like God changed my life overnight. Like God has met me in so many countless circumstances. And my wife would say the same thing, even inside health issues. And and here's the reality. God doesn't heal everything. Like we're all going to die. Unless Jesus returns first, we're all going to die. Something will kill us. Yep. I'm okay with that. Like I'm, I, I get, I know the end of the story and I know God is good and I know we don't always get everything we ask for. And God has provided so many things, but you're right. The discipline, and I would say the theological discipline of knowing who God is, allowing scripture to be my guide when my feelings or my experience is opposite, allowing scripture to be my guide in that, Yep. The only thing I did right was discipline. I got <laughs> up, right? You know, and I mean, where am I going to go? I, yeah, what yeah. else have I got? Yep. When I'm in charge of my life, it's a mess. So <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to keep going, right? That's cool. So so let's fast forward to basically today's time. Sure. So now I want you to um I want you to explain to me. I want you to tell me how I like this. Sure. I uh, I think I told you this recently. Um I love my life. Right now, again, Lisa's still sick. If I could change anything, it'd be that. Okay. I'd love to hit the lottery, but I don't buy scratch offs. <laughs> so, I mean, it just probably isn't going to happen. Right. Uh, I guess scratch offs aren't even the lottery. I guess so that's check this numbers. Out. So I know a guy who, okay. uh, who, coll- who goes through the trash and picks out old lottery tickets. And do you know that there's something called second chance on the certain types of scratchers? He won 15,000 bucks. Is that right? See, out I of the trash. Play. All right. All right. Well, I would love to hit the lottery, but I don't play. So there's that, right? But, you know, other than Lisa's health, here's what I can say. I married the wife of my youth, right? I married the girl I loved in high school, right? I do a job that I never don't want to do, right? And when I was in construction or when I was in other things, I remember waking up and not wanting to go to work. I have days that are hard now, but I never have that. I never get up and don't want to do what I do. When I teach at the school, teach Bible at the high school, right? I love doing that and connecting with the students. I never don't want to do it. When I get stuck in traffic, I'm in my Jeep. I actually enjoy that. Like I love every bit of my life. I really do. With the exception of I wish Lisa was healthier and, and we could do more together, but I love the life that I live. And, I, and I'll, I'll tell you why I answer it that way. I was in my early 30s. And when I, w- when I turned 30, like I said, I was behind every 17, 18-year-old on the planet, right? And I remember 31, 32, when I went to those three college classes I did before I went to grad school, my English professor was older than me. And I went to Orange Coast College, and she was, I'm, I'm sorry, she was younger than me. I was older than her. And I remember just thinking, I'm always going to be behind in life. And God gave me this promise. It's out of Joel 2. And the background for the passage is God has wiped out Israel's life because they've been disobedient. But he makes them a promise that if they return to him, and he says this, I will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. So part of the penalty was locusts wiped out their crops and they're going hungry. I'll restore those years. And I remember... I remember praying like, God, I'm always going to be behind. He says, listen, I'll restore those years. So if you fast forward to today, I just turned 53 and I am an average 53 year old. Yep. 
my vocation, my career, my, you know, own a home or whatever else, like, are there are ways I'm behind. I should have started saving for retirement earlier, but a lot of people say that. Tons. Right? But you, there's not like I'm working for some 30-year-old because I just am so far behind in life. Like I'm actually, it's like my past never existed. It's like I'm telling you about a book I read or a movie I saw, yep. but it is my life. But it doesn't define me today. I'm not behind, I'm current. And the life that I live, I am joyful about. There's things I want to change and do better. There's, you know, sin to overcome and bad habits to break. But man, I could have never, and I, I pray this all the time, I don't deserve any of it. I deserve to still be in prison. By the things I did, I should still be there. So I appreciate probably every day more than most. That is an awesome uh, perspective on life. It's living present, which is ultimately what Jesus tells us to do. Yeah. And it's also a great way to wrap this up. So I want to thank you for uh, letting go of the the control panel for a minute a and letting a knucklehead like me kind of step in and kind of lead this discussion on your story. Um, and I think that if everybody listens to this, they are going to, one, learn a ton more about who you are, which you being the the main leader here at church is important, I think, for people to connect and engage with you in that way. And, uh, and it's a story that, that can... It, <laughs> This, this may sound worse than it really is. I mean the good, not the bad. It's a story that can inspire even the worst individual. Even the <laughs> biggest dummy. That's it. No, hey, and thank you for doing this, man. It's been fun. Jeff, enjoy your sabbatical. I can't wait till you get back. And we are going to launch this church this fall into some exciting new things. Thank you for listening to this story about how Jesus made a difference. Generations Church is filled with ordinary people who met an extraordinary Savior. Subscribe so you don't miss a single story. Would you stop and share this with one friend today? The story of Jesus is most easily seen in the lives of people who know Him.